listening to the Carleton Political Science Podcast, brought to you by the Department of Political Science at Carleton University in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. I'm Asif Me, one of the PhD students with the program. The response to COVID-19 across the world has been unlike anything experienced in the contemporary era. Changing the nature of human experience from interaction to isolation, the virus has had a previously unimaginable impact on states, societies, and economies around the world. The political impact of coronavirus has been immense, but perhaps more significant has been the philosophical impact on the human condition itself. What are the impacts on the psyche of death and disease on a global scale? How does humanity continue to progress when, to take a page from Yates, in the widening gyre things fall apart and the center cannot hold? And what are some of the lessons that we can learn from theorists throughout history who wrote in times of pestilence and plague? In the second episode in our series on the politics of COVID-19, we take a look at the contributions made by political theorists in our understanding of coronavirus and its social, economic, and political impacts, and look to history to find philosophical inferences that can be drawn from plagues and disease in the past. To discuss these issues, I'm joined by Taylor Green. Taylor's a PhD student with the Department of Political Science here at Carleton, specializing in political theory, the philosophy of technology, and Canadian political thought. COVID-19 is obviously an unprecedented political event in our time, but it's not the first time that we've seen plagues in history. You know, one can look to the Spanish flu 100 years ago and the Black Death before, and disease and plague end up being common themes throughout history. I'm wondering what have political philosophers said in the past about disease, and what can be drawn from those examples and from those statements onto the current crisis faced today with COVID-19? Well, I don't think political philosophers have necessarily been focused on disease as, say, like an independent variable or something. I think disease has shaped the course of human history in various ways. But um, I think I'm thinking of one uh, particular historian. He's not necessarily a philosopher. He does have a political philosophy of sorts. Um, And this is the classic historian Thucydides. Now, Thucydides writes the history of the Peloponnesian War mm. with Athens and Sparta. And Athens during this war is just kind of decimated with plague. So I think Thucydides comes closest to something of an understanding of the disease because he looks at it kind of as an impetus for people to break the law and become lawless and impious and things like that. But, I mean, through the course of history, there's been you know, many political philosophers who have had this analogy to the body and health. And usually some of them like draw this analogy between like the perfect city or the healthy city and like a healthy body. And I think that has been somewhat of a motivation for some philosophers to think about these types of things, like the ideal city or uh, a healthy city between plebeian and partition class of people. So I think that's kind of interesting in that regard. The plague, I think, is different than what we are experiencing now, I think, because we're in the advent of science. So I think we have a deeper understanding of something like COVID-19 and its different, uh, you know, variations. But this plague has been something that's come through back and forth throughout history as, you know, a communicable disease or something to this effect. The plague certainly ravaged the Athenians in 430 B.C., What happened, Thucydides said, is that it kind of laid human nature bare. We saw human nature kind of exposed when conventions, morality, 
laws kind of disintegrated because death was all around. So the plague kind of swept through Athens, and it, uh, he says it morally corrupted the citizens. Thucydides' point by outlining the situation in his history is that education, piety, moral conventions cannot be relied upon in times of crisis and stress. Avarice and necessity bring about a cycle of moral corruption, and with this cycle being a very difficult thing to stop. In his history, he contrasts uh, Pericles' grand funeral oration. Pericles was this leader in Athens who many today are, uh, you know, modeled themselves after even because he was such a great statesman. So we often look to Pericles as like this kind of model of a great statesman. But uh, Thucydides, this this weird thing in his history where he says uh, he first juxtaposes the funeral oration where Pericles has this grand praise for the citizenry of Athens to say, you're so virtuous, you're fighting the Spartans, you do right by honor and you have proper burial rites and all these things. So he's, he's kind of praising the citizens in this funeral oration. It's, a, it's kind of interesting, but what Thucydides does is he says, right after the funeral oration, he, he dives into the plague. So he kind of juxtaposes these two versions of the Athenian citizenry. You know, one kind of virtuous in war, they're going to war against the Spartans, and then the plague kind of decimates this ideal perception of the Athenian citizenry. And, uh, you know, it becomes much darker, and there's looting, and the plague wipes out a lot of rich estates, and, and the poor come in and just, like, take up their homes, and, you know, no one has regard for property or burial rights or, or piety or any of these things. So right after the funeral oration, he goes into this kind of dark segment of what happens during the plague, and Pericles comes and tries to give a, a speech to Athens during this. He says... You guys have no respect anymore just because you're facing something very difficult and tough, a crisis. Death is kind of all around and things like this. But you need to kind of stand up to this. You need to be the virtuous citizens like I know you are. And the citizens were looking for someone to blame. I think Thucydides is trying to say that Pericles is such a great leader. He's beyond corruption. So, you know, the Athenians, they deal with a lot of corruption and tyranny. Uh, Pisistratus, Alcibiades, but... Pericles was this kind of like model figure that was kind of beyond corruption. And Thucydides is kind of warning this tale that when you go into a time of crisis and like fear and panic and death are, are spread so far in the community, even the greatest leaders are subject to the vile projections that you would relay to a corrupted leader when that was in fact unfair. And, and Pericles is saying this to a speech to the Athenians, like, like I am here as the the benchmark, the uh, the voice of sanity, and even you guys cannot face this kind of disease that's running rapid in the community, and and you want to blame me, you know, and that and that could be a little, you know, egotistical on Pericles' part, but I had this kind of analogy in mind where uh, uh, during the Dark Knight, Commissioner Gordon is kind of saying what Batman means to Gotham, and he's the hero that Gotham deserves, but not the one we need right now. You know, and that was kind of Pericles to the Athenian citizens. Like, you should stand up to these great disasters and not let them eclipse your reputation as good citizens and, and virtuous citizens and things like this. But uh, it brings the worst out of people. And people stop believing in the gods. And people stop believing in the law. These are the things that it laid bare. There was this impetus during the Peloponnesian War, I guess like the first year, that the honor and glory that was brought to the citizenry 
uh, was justified. And Pericles is kind of praising them and things. And it's, it's, I just find it so interesting that Thucydides, right in the next passage, is saying how ephemeral these types of praise for honor and glory and things like this is. It's, it's very ephemeral. And then in the next passage, you have a disease that's something that comes into the city, bringing with it anxiety and death. And all of a sudden, you see human nature laid bare, stripped of its conventions, I mean. And obviously, I don't... It, I don't think this would reach a point in our modern liberal democracies. I think Canada especially has done such a wonderful job of some tame and practicing social distancing and self-isolation and these types of things. And there hasn't been riots or lawlessness like you don't see this in the news. Or Part of me does worry, though, that we do see stuff like that, though, especially in the States where you have armed gunmen storming state capitals in quote-unquote protest of being kept indoors. Mm-hmm. what's well, interesting because you know philosophy is always answering big and small questions right the full gamut of experience and probably you know one of the most basic things in terms of questions to ask would be questions in relation to the body and health um that makes me wonder or how have philosophers conceptualized health in the body over time and how have different philosophical traditions viewed the body differently well the health of the human body i think throughout uh, the history of political philosophy has been more of an illusion. Uh, it's something that we can allude to, to say that our social uh, understanding and our social body, the body politic, is healthy, uh, similar to a healthy body. And it was this kind of a perfected ideal or something that when you are healthy, uh, so are the ills uh, in the social body. So we can rid of ills in the social body just as uh, medicine can treat the human body. Uh, and many examples of this come to mind. I mean, Machiavelli draws on the parallels of the human body and the body politic. He formulates this conception of humors that was popular in Renaissance medicine. And that kind of the Renaissance period used, used for an example to talk about bile and different bodily functions. He applies these humors that they used in medicine directly to the body politic. So that the satisfaction and desires of like a class, so say the plebeian class, he looks to like Rome, for example. But so the plebeian class would have their desires kind of satisfied through different institutions. And he applied this to the other classes. And so the human, these humors can be treated just as medicine can treat the ills of the human body. So in another example, I'm thinking of um, Hobbes in his Leviathan draws on different parts of the body in an allusion to different parts of the healthy commonwealth. I think the human body, as it's been treated by medicine, there's this lineage in history and political philosophy as an allusion to that. In regards to the disease, I think there's a particular uh, example from Rousseau. So Rousseau in his second discourse, I think has this passage on disease. But I think some context is necessary to understand what Rousseau means when he talks about, about disease. Rousseau was an enlightenment philosopher 18th century, but is certainly critical of what you would call enlightenment tenets. His philosophy kind of like explores what the human would be like in the state of nature before civilization. So in this regard, he's like a social contract theorist. Uh, in fact, he writes a book called The Social Contract in which he responds to Hobbes, Locke, Freudus. I think at its foundation, Rousseau's philosophy asks whether humanity was freer and happier in the state of nature. And he has this weird theory that he says 
the natural human was more robust than in society where the human can be treated for medicine and disease. He has this weird kind of suedo medical uh, idea that in society we become more comfortable, pursue more pleasures, and in that regard makes us more infirm. Our immune systems, to our intellect, to our sentience, all of these types of things. In particular, he says that in the second discourse, linked to how we imagine ourselves in prehistorical times, Rousseau has these peculiar passages on genus, speech, and disease. And he says there are natural infirmity, infirmities, like childhood, old age, uh, and illnesses. But it is only the latter that you see in human societies and not in the animal, which he finds very peculiar. And so he says it could be the case that as we progress in our civilization, this is where kind of disease comes from. So he doesn't give an actual explanation or kind of impetus for what causes disease, so to say, as it is that once we socially become more civilized, diseases are more transmittable, we kind of weaken our immune systems, and therefore diseases are more... So he would look at something like the plague and say, of course it comes more and more once we become more civilized. Like he would say, of course, you look at the world of globalization and interconnectedness and kind of cosmopolitanism that we live in right now, and of course you're going to get these waves of diseases and things like this. Very controversial. So he says, one is strongly inclined to believe that the history of human illnesses could easily be written by following that of civil societies. To connect this to COVID, we could say that this is novel because of how connected and civilized the planet is right now. And simply that Rousseau could be right insofar as the disease and its transmissions follow this trajectory. Industrialization, urbanization, agricultural innovation, and these big metropolitan cities we live in now. But Rousseau also has this answer in the social contract that is probably just as problematic. Many have criticized the relation between uh, Rousseau and Robespierre inspiring the terror of the French Revolution. And I think what we take from Rousseau here is we say we could never test what he's saying. His hypothesis, you know, that civil society and disease are kind of parallel in their uh, increasing probability, one could say. We could never test the hypothesis of Rousseau that humans in the state of nature do not need medicine or doctors of any kind. However, what does disprove Rousseau, I think, would be evidence of the increasing life expectancy that we've seen, I think, from the 1950s, the Great Acceleration. And what has caused an increase in life expectancy and, you know, a decrease in infant mortality rates has been products of science, right? They've been vaccinations, they've been sterilization, improvements in medicine, and Rousseau's answer, of course, would be to these types of things, would be, well, he did not go back far enough to see that the natural human had no disease of any kind. You know, Rousseau is very complicated. His philosophy is very controversial on the one hand. He writes very inflammatory. But on the other hand, there's something to be said that how reliant are we on the comforts and pleasures of civil society. And we see the effects, like immediately right away you shut down the border and there's all these nationalistic connotations of, of COVID-19, right? 
you have the sovereignty question again, like where are sovereign borders and things. What's interesting is you, you kind of move through the questions that Rousseau brings up and they all inevitably hit that same wall of death. And, the, you know, one of the things that really fascinates me with COVID is almost how desensitized we've come when it comes to death. Like in Canada, we're inching towards 4,000 people dying. Okay. On one hand, people will be like, well, look at the population of Canada, or even the population of people who catch the disease. And that's not many, but that's still 4,000 people. You take it on a worldwide scale and we're inching towards 250,000 people dying. These are huge numbers. Again, in relation to the population of the world or the population, even people who have the disease, it would seem like it's not a lot, but it's still 250,000 lives gone in an instant. And I, I can't help but wonder, on this topic of death, what philosophers stick out to you to have something to say about you know, the effect of wide-scale death on the body politic? Well, it's interesting. I took a course in which the professor taught nihilism, which is kind of like this meaninglessness that you see in society mm. and how we've responded to this nihilism, I guess, in different waves of political philosophy. And I found it particularly interesting that there was, from this case of nihilism, a kind of break with traditional political philosophy to try these and experiment in these new I guess, vistas of philosophy. And one of them was this existential movement. And existentialism undoubtedly uh, comes back to Martin Heidegger. And I think he kind of invents this whole movement. But among some of the French existentialists, Jean-Paul Sartre, de Beauvoir, Albert Camus, these types of people kind of also played with death insofar as it's a philosophical movement of existentialism. By kind of facing death and anxiety, we can learn something more about like ourselves, but kind of without the traditional constraints of metaphysics and ethics. That's just to say, like, without traditional constraints of morality or how to act politically or individually. And so there was this kind of like renewed sense uh, post-World War II where we were dealing with these nihilistic tendencies in continental thought. But undoubtedly, you have to come back to Martin Heidegger, I think, because for one, he is kind of closing off this movement that kind of started with Rousseau, actually, of German idealism, in which case, liberalism, capitalism, as we saw with Rousseau, were kind of insufficient in addressing the human's freedom and happiness. So to not get too far off track, Rousseau's answer in the social contract was that you can only have one or the other. Like, you can only have freedom and you can't really have happiness. Heidegger, a few centuries later, kind of straps all Enlightenment tenets, the progression of science and kind of this new conception of technology. He scraps it all. He kind of rejects it. And he says, we have forgotten what he calls being. And being is just kind of the totality of existence. So we have, we have forgotten this in our traditional metaphysical notions of good and evil in our in our technological notions of uh, you know what airplanes and automobiles and these types of things but it's interesting because in his early philosophy uh, of being in time being in time in 1927 was kind of like his seminal work but it was a work of yes there was the technological critique uh, but at the same time it was an existentialist 
kind of renewed with renewed vigor, a way to address the philosophical concerns of old. So undoubtedly, Plato and Aristotle dealt with this notion of being, but their kind of responses were that we can have an ethics, we can have justice, we can have morality from this notion of being. Heidegger says you definitely cannot. Heidegger would be totally against any sort of ethical notion of how to be. And in Introduction of Metaphysics, he says, the question that's running through the entire thing, he asks, why are there beings at all instead of nothing? Like, why is there something at all instead of nothing? So people through the history of political philosophy have always answered, well, you know, Descartes would say, you know, I think, therefore I am. Like, I know I'm a human being because of my subjectiveness, because I know I'm thinking right now. Like, the only thing I can affirm is, like, myself, the subject. You know, the outer world could be a lie. It could be, you know, fake. And I think Heidegger's reversal of that is that the outer world is something that can inform our humanness in a way. So to, to kind of get back to this notion of death, he, what he calls in being in time death and this notion of death like an ontological structure. So he describes this notion of the ontic. It's how things are. Like the ontic is like a property. So if we say like uh, the chair is blue, that blueness is a property kind of like of the chair. But he separates this from the ontological notion. And the ontological uh, is more like being. It's like how our existence is defined. So from our example, if we say the chair is blue, he would say, well, what do we mean when we say the chair is? The chair is something. Why are there beings at all instead of nothing? Is a very profound kind of reversal of political philosophy that's contingent upon the notion of death. So he has this, this like being towards death that kind of prompts anxiety and fear. So if we look right now and we open the news and we see tragic stories of death and panic and people destitute, he would say how we interpret COVID-19 is through these structures of meaning impacting how we not only view the phenomena of a public health crisis, but how we in turn view ourselves existentially and in, in relation to the whole of things, right? In relation to our existence. For example, many people right now are worried about a, res a recession about prices going up or a large government deficit. So Heidegger says in Being in Time, in the broadest sense, death is a phenomenon of life. So there are kinds of death in a particular arrangement, this kind of ontological structure, at any time in our lives that affect, uh, you know, for instance, the psychology of the market. The rhetoric around different policies and, and what we're seeing with Trudeau in the stimulus package right now, he would say that there's this ontological structure of death that's impacting kind of everything psychologically. If, if you think of Heidegger, you think of like the totality of existence and things, which like Rousseau was very problematic because you critique things like science and technology because they are increasingly covering up thinking about our existence and the totality is what Heidegger claims. You look at things right now like Zoom and these types of things like Wow, technology is kind of saving us from our alienation in our self-isolation in these. It's tough to say that Heidegger's hopeful, but I think Heidegger would look at something like this right now and and be hopeful that it can save us existentially in some way.
that through this confrontation with death, we will not only reevaluate our own lives, but kind of reevaluate what we've been doing in society uh, with how focused on the comforts of maybe technology or something we, we have been. You know, I don't want to get into the politics of Heidegger because, I mean, that's a whole other can of worms. But if we stick to the existential side, I think it brings to the forefront proposing a new arrangement while confronted with death. Maybe you've had a grandfather passes away and you go through a point of reflection in your life, right? So obviously there's grief and these types of things, but, but it almost calls upon this existential notion. Who am I an individual? How am I going to maybe remember him? How is my life going at this moment? Like these types of questions would prompt someone, I guess, to maybe even overcome the alienation and things that we're experiencing right now with uh, self-isolation and stuff. So evidently, like Heidegger would love a, a rupture in the West's business as usual kind of thing because he's critical of science and technology's understanding of existence. Heidegger would look at COVID and hope that the saving power lies in this disruption. But now, of course, we need the economy to live, right? We live in liberal democracies. Like, our whole lives are kind of contingent upon the economy, and that's spurring a lot of the worry and stuff right now. It gives very little prescription on what to do and how to act, and that's the point. It's kind of a reevaluation without borders. It's kind of saying political philosophy and its tradition has brought us this far and we need to rethink things. And many scholars agree that it is beyond any notion of ethics or any political practice. Um, in fact, a famous Canadian political philosopher, Charles Taylor, wrote a paper on Heidegger and ecology, on how Heidegger's notion of being is the existential understanding we need to understand uh, the environmental crisis we're in right now. But if you look at something like Albert Camus' The Plague, so he wrote a book actually called The Plague. It's funny because like the main characters are dealing with the pressures of quarantine, you know, where conventional religion loses its hold and superstitions abound. And I was thinking about all of this. I read an article on CBC that one in 10 Canadians think that uh, COVID-19 is a conspiracy or something. It's some conspiracy drawn out from this. But it's interesting that in 1947, when Camus writes The Plague, that... Uh, you know, superstitions are abounding then and things. There's still people out there who think Elvis is still alive, right? <laughs> yeah, they still think Elvis is still alive and the moon landing was fake, yeah. It is interesting, though, because you mentioned, like, how Heidegger feels, you know, that disruption is really the way forward. And if, if we are to combat sort of the issues of modernity, it has to come through a disruption of it. And there's one really key disruption, or realignment, perhaps, of his would be a better way of... of framing it that i've noticed in all this and that's the realignment of state society relations you know mm -hmm. the past four or five decades we've really seen this idea through the discourse of neoliberalism that you know the state needs to stay back and let the market be free and do whatever it, it needs to do in order to to keep states and uh, economies strong and healthy but mm -hmm. in, in the face of this crisis we've seen that kind of get turned on its head where the state is kind of back into the center here um and it's really, like I said, it goes against the conventional wisdom of what's been the nature of state responsibility in the past half century. What are some of the theoretical insights that we can really draw on to understand the state in times of calamity? Well, it's interesting. I listened to a talk not too long ago that it was about Adam Smith 
and the influence kind of Rousseau had on Adam Smith's philosophy. And you kind of hear all these libertarians always say, oh, well, you know, the market's got to balance itself out or, you know, neoliberalism is the way to go because this is what fundamentally captures society. Everyone's interest is kind of the collective interest. Uh, you know, the invisible hand, the market will balance itself out. But, but you necessarily see, I mean, in times of crisis that the state has to step in and it has to do these things. And, you know, it, it does make you question like what the state's proper role is. Maybe even when times are good, I think maybe coming out of COVID, do you, do you think times will change in which we're fundamentally, uh, our relation to the state changes? Uh, you know, maybe going forward, I think that might be the case where, where our relation to the state or civil society's relation to the state, as you mentioned, will, fundamentally be altered because our generation now are going to be living through this uh, quarantine public health crisis. So, you know, I think that's pretty interesting in what you bring up. Like, do you think like activism and these types of things will change? I definitely think that the States now just by sheer necessity, there's kind of greater understanding that it has to have a greater role that we can't just leave it to the market because in many ways we can kind of look at this issue as being like a reflection of like deregulation, right? Like much of the spread here just has to do with the fact that, you know, the state isn't monitoring stuff like consumption or like health, you know, and like suddenly we have this global pandemic that stems very much from unfettered capitalism in some ways, but also just like a, a deregulation as being the norm of, of state behavior. Mm -hmm. Oh, I completely agree. I wrote down this quote from Daniel Defoe, who had a journal of the plague year. That was his book. It was published in 1722. Mm -hmm. But he kind of chastises all these kind of London merchants who are like disobeying the kind of quarantine restrictions on commerce. Like none of them wanted to obey, right? They wanted to kind of go make money. And it was these private interests that were trumping public interests. But now you see kind of like a reconceptualization of like the common or public good, right? Especially, I think, the other thrust is the public health with this thing. So I think what you mentioned is completely accurate. That, uh, and I think sovereignty too, like it's fundamentally, you know, NAFTA could just be well, just as well ripped up. I mean, no, here's the border. It is closed down. We are not doing business here. Uh, this is Canada. That's the United States. And, you know, we're in the midst of a crisis. Things shut down. So I think the trend beforehand was this moving progression of continentalism and almost like a united uh, North America. I'm a big proponent of, of George Grant. I'm an avid reader of George Grant, I should say. And he kind of questioned this rise of continentalism where Canada should be subsumed into the economy of the United States. But, I mean, you know, as Canadian citizens, we want all this trade. And we do see a tension between cosmopolitanism and, and sort of nationalism i guess would be the best term to use you know because on one hand you have europe and canada kind of working together and putting large sums of money towards you know joint ventures and finding a vaccine right billions being spent and on the other hand you have you know the the american model of well let's just throw free trade out the window if 3m is going to be making masks for canada we're just going to take those masks for ourselves 
and it really reflects kind of a for me like it's it's a, it's an illustration of the, this tension where like there is an attempt at trying to carve out that collective good with yep. cosmopolitanism but then mm-hmm. you know fear kind of grips certain states we can see under the trump administration them being the prime example you know america first ends up taking on a whole new identity there yeah no i completely agree and if i go back to the thucydides model i think that's exactly what was at play like are you going to stand up on a cosmolo on a cosmopolitan scale are you going to stand up to this virus and be cooperative with other countries or are you going to kind of uh, crumble under the fear maybe and look out for the private interests of things and i think this private versus public interest in the times of crisis has always been the case you know and i don't think it'll go as far as like on the scale of war where you have national like a hyper nationalism defined because that's the international tension that's going on but here it was a i think you're absolutely right it was a perfect opportunity for global cooperation and you have trump in the state saying no 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 we need these masks for our people and things like this so it could have been just as much like a fear gripping him what thucydides was talking about and the Athenian people not listening to their leader kind of thing. So I want to go back on something you talked about earlier, which is alienation. Because the interesting thing with COVID is the road forward is really being paved in separation and alienation, right? We're told social distancing. That's the way to protect the body, to protect society on large. And, you know, humans are social creatures. We're, we're socially oriented. So this has been a hard adjustment for people. Mm-hmm. Um are there any sort of insights from political philosophy on humanity's ability to do this? Are there costs associated with alienating ourselves from one another? Well, I don't know if I could fundamentally analyze all the economic costs of alienation, but I think for the, the more robust theoretical notions of alienation, I would turn to Hegel fundamentally because I think Hegel's philosophy in the phenomenology spirit is predicated on sort of a fight. Like, whereas Rousseau thinks that kind of the natural human being would encounter another human being and kind of just part ways. So he says, like, we don't even need speech, like Aristotle says, like, we don't need speech to be, to exist. Like, Rousseau would think that a human being would see another human being and go in separate directions. Like, we value uh, the sweet sentiment of existence more so than conversing with other people and things like this. Hegel would say when a consciousness in prehistorical time encounters another consciousness, there's, there's a fight immediately to the death and whoever is willing to risk their life is the one whose consciousness kind of like fully develops. And then the other person is the other, right? Or kind of like the dependent consciousness. So, and it's through that kind of, fight of life and death and then the uh the kind of lower consciousness does work through labor and kind of realizes that there's like a world of things in which that person is not that consciousness kind of thing i know i know it's getting very metaphysical but uh, it's like as long as you're not that consciousness you gain consciousness that you are par on the same level as the master or the independent consciousness so to bring this back to alienation I think Hegel was responding to a time where uh, Napoleon invaded Gina, uh, Gina and stuff like this, and he's looking. And so he's looking for like these world historical figures, he said in his philosophy of history, that are kind of 
elevating consciousness. So it's this kind of struggle and strife. And you see this with the uh, philosophy of Hobbes as well. It's this struggle and kind of strife that, that for Hegel bring you to maybe almost another level of consciousness that was already there. So it's like a negative dialectic they called it. But I think the same could be said of our self-isolation and social distancing now. So, I mean, you go to the store and then, you know, you're in the same aisle in the grocery store as someone else. Like, you know, it's almost like everyone freaks out. Like, I got to maintain my distance here because uh, this is what public health authorities are advocating for, which is, you know, to prevent the spread of the disease. But I think in that same type of confrontation of death that the master and slave consciousness battled out for in prehistorical times, according to Hegel, I think that now is making us realize our consciousness maybe in the West uh, as Canadians, you know, because, it, you know, you miss almost that human connection, right? Like it's a, especially alienation and staying at home and all these things. But at the same time, I think it prompts you to understand more what's valuable to you. These social relations, like I've been calling people I haven't spoke to in years and having, uh, you know, great conversations with my parents and things because you're in the midst of these crises. You're in the midst of a crisis, a public health crisis, and you kind of have to struggle to get that notion of consciousness. Consciousness is a weird uh, kind of conception to define, right? But uh, you, you kind of have a notion generally of what consciousness is, I think. I think people generally do, but... Uh, I think this definitely is propelling that consciousness uh, forward. And I think we'll come out of this. So, you know, you kind of hit this fork in the road. It could just be like a big fear-based response kind of after this, where people are so kind of exhausted and tired of being scared all the time. Or you can kind of have this uh, notion of consciousness where, you know, the social bonds are strengthened. People realize the value of going to the grocery store and not social distancing and things anymore. So, kind of segues well towards the next thing which I want to talk about, which is you know making our way back out, because the narrative over the past week has really changed towards inching towards you know normal, whatever normal was. You know, mm -hmm. obviously this has elicited you know both hope and fear in people because. The idea of making it out to the other side is something we all want to do. But on the other hand, we can't help but think, is it too soon? Um, and I'm just wondering, like, what are the inferences we can draw from political philosophy here and our ability to go back? You know, can we return to that way of life or would they say we're condemned to a darker future? Well, I think it'll be a fun, like a big piece of our culture for for years down the line. Now, I think our, our generation will will be defined by this. This is something you don't. Uh, see in modern history but doing a bit of research i mean plagues and pandemics and epidemics they've been around throughout the history of humanity they, you know disease is just almost part of humanity i think how far the economy will take a hit will be definitely predicated upon how quick things turn to normal i think the other thing we have to consider uh you know are these new public health directives. I think they will be on our mind for a while. I think the supply of hand sanitizer will be in an excess for many years to come. Who knows what is to come of uh, 
these these strategies that we've adopted you know do we, do we become more patriotic do we become more nationalistic do we trust government more do we see a lot of these types of stigmatizations on how we're supposed to go to the grocery store and how we're supposed to be in public you know do we see people afraid to meet in more in groups of more than five people you know are people more afraid to have children so I think war and pestilence and these other things have defined the social environment of epochs of different kinds for for many times in the history of humanity and and you know what I find comfort in is the fact that humanity has overcome these diseases before become a better version of humanity than in previous epochs and I guess the last question I, I want to ask is you're obviously doing your, your PhD here at Carleton the Department of Political Science what have you been working on lately? Tell us a bit about your work. If you haven't guessed from the podcast, I'm working on kind of German idealism. I'm in the midst of kind of struggling through how much Hegel was part of the natural law tradition insofar as what did Hegel do to propel this kind of project of mastery of nature forward. So I think that's a, a fundamental part of my dissertation right now. I'm uh, trying to work through this, but uh, you know, I've, I've fundamentally been interested in this question of technology, I think from, uh, from my late undergrad years. And I would like to kind of explore this in the German idealist tradition, because this notion of technology, which is a Heideggerian concept. And, you know, I see this now with COVID and all these troubles we've had over our technological perplexity. Like we're trying to get all these testing kits and we're trying to get all these uh, supplies and you know and vaccines our scientists are ramping up all these projects for trying to figure out a vaccine and it makes me question our relation to technology in a in a society you know and you see the rhetoric of Trudeau kind of say we will trust science whatever the legitimate thing is science will tell us and I think that's so interesting to kind of where we are in the history of things. For example, when when would you say kind of technology has started? The first time someone used a stick to dig a hole. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly, right? And it's fundamentally this technique of overcoming problems. It's interesting right now to look that we're looking to technology and science to solve this big crisis that we're in. Like, if only we had this magical formula. So in some way relating it back to COVID, that's kind of what I'm working on in uh, and the German idealist tradition. So Sounds like fascinating stuff and relevant. Yeah, hopefully. Hopefully for scholarships and stuff very relevant. So, <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, man. And thank you for taking the time amidst you know the pandemic to talk to me about this stuff. Yeah, no problem. Uh, more of this stuff needs to abound during a pandemic. And we need to come together as humans and, and figure this stuff out. So Stronger the together than the part, right? Yeah, yeah, completely agree. Anyways, man, I'll let you go. Thanks again for taking the time. Oh, yeah. Thanks very much, Asif. And I uh, uh, hope everyone stays healthy and happy and uh, not too alienating. Let's listen to this. All the best to you. And uh, thanks for taking the time to do this. Thanks so much for listening. Make sure to follow us on social media. You can find us on Twitter at CU underscore PolySci, on Instagram at CU underscore Poly dot sci, and on Facebook at CarltonU.PolySci.